I think that's the hardest buck to make in real estate. Uh, you know, buying an old property, you got to fix up. And it's silly because all these shows glamorize it. You're right. It's the hardest dollar you will ever make in real estate is buying a fixer upper, fixing it up, dealing with contractors, permits, and then trying to sell it. You know, that's the hardest dollar I've ever made. There's no doubt about it. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build passive wealth by investing in Main Street, investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Aaron Fragnito. And today we are talking about, we're comparing and contrasting long-term and short-term rentals. He does both of those. He owns apartments and he owns short-term vacation rentals. So I think we're really, I know we're really getting a, a balanced viewpoint here. It's not somebody that only does one of those that really has an axe to grind about one of those particular investments. We're getting a perspective of someone who does both long-term and short-term rentals. And we're learning about the pros and cons of each one of them and really what they offer to investors, to you as an investor, to anyone out there who wants to do either one of those long-term and short-term rentals, really apartments and vacation rentals. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time. I know people in both of these worlds, long-term and short-term rentals, but most of those folks only do one or the other, right? I only do long-term rentals, but I know about short-term rentals. I don't do short-term rentals. And I'm glad to have Aaron on the show because like I said, he does both of them. So I feel like we're getting, I know we're getting a balanced viewpoint here and some very good information, informed viewpoint on both of those. So very excited today. You're going to learn about, uh, long-term versus short-term rentals and his strategies for doing both. You're also going to learn about how passive investors can play a role in either long-term or short-term rentals in particular. You might know about long-term rentals, how passive investors can get in long-term rentals already, but you're going to learn about short-term rental passive investing as well. If you enjoy the show and you're an Apple Podcast user, please take a quick second, leave us a rate and review on Apple Podcast. Five stars if you don't mind. Would be very much appreciated. That helps other people learn about the show. That helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that helps me feel good because I get to see that you guys are engaging with the content, you're learning from the show, and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you you use, if you do enjoy the show, take take a quick second, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit that subscribe button, that way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I am your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate apartments, to be be specific, with passive investors and split the return. I love learning new things. I love teaching people new things. And today, you're going to learn about long-term versus short-term rentals and what each of them offers to investors. It's a great conversation with Aaron very informative, and you're going to learn a lot. Without any further ado, here we go with Aaron Fragnito from the People's Capital. Aaron, thank you for joining us today. Taylor, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Hey, it's been great talking with you so far, and we're going to have a great, uh, valuable conversation for our listeners here. For those out there who don't know about you and what you do, can you give us an intro to your background and your business, and then we'll dive right into what we're going to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Aaron Fragnito with People's Capital Group, and we're located in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. So we focus on buying apartment buildings in North Jersey, and we also focus on doing short-term rentals in Southern Vermont. 
And uh, so, yeah, that's really our two specialties. Awesome. And that is right into what the conversation I wanted to have with you today is learning about the short-term rental business that you're engaged in and also comparing and contrasting the long-term rentals of apartments with your short-term rental experience because short-term rentals are very popular these days, but I feel like we only hear about the, say, advantages and not maybe some of the comparative disadvantages. So I want to have a conversation where we learn about the whole realm and compare and contrast the two. So, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's get break into it that. apart. Let's dig in there, man. Face first. Love it. Love it. So first off, let's break into it. Tell us about uh, those relative experiences of buying long-term rentals, apartments in North Jersey, and then what you've been doing more recently in Vermont. Sure, sure. So yes, we folk, we've we been buying apartment buildings and income properties in Northern Jersey, you know, Jersey City, Newark, Patterson, Morristown, Plainfield, if you're familiar with any of those markets, and generally about an hour from uh, New York, allows you to commute to New York within an hour. And for example, we're, uh, we just put out an offering yesterday. It's 28 units in Rahway, New Jersey. You know, this is a kind of a mismanaged apartment building. Rents are about 30% below market value. It's two blocks to a train station that gets you into Manhattan in 45 minutes. Not bad. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, they, we need to put kitchenettes in the studios. We're about 15 studios. We're going to put kitchenettes in there, make them into more enjoyable apartments with actual kitchens, you know, renovate the other units uh, cosmetically. But it's really a nice building, just a bit mismanaged, great location, huge parking lot. So we'll buy that. We'll, we'll put some money into it, spruce it up, uh, increase the rent roll, lower our expenses, and you know, reposition the building and refinance out over time. And you know, I mean, I, I don't want to give away my position on which one I like more too soon. But boy, <laughs> is that tried and true, my friend. It doesn't matter if you know no one in Rahway is going to be like you can't lease property anymore. You know, like so the laws can't just change and take it away. But we'll dig into that later. But you know, so really a tried and true investment. We've been doing this about ten years, and man, I I, I just refinanced a property myself. I bought in Newark in 2013 for you know pennies in the dollar and. Boy, it's just such a great strategy. Buy or never refinance. We love it. Absolutely. Like you said, tried and true. Now, uh, if you would, let's learn a little bit about your more recent uh, short-term rental experience so we can flesh that out. Sure. Well, in about 2018, I bought a uh, small property in Southern Vermont. I love to ski, so I'd always be going up to uh, Southern Vermont to ski. I, I'm uh, about four hours south of that in Jersey there. So. Nice. Um, you know, I'd look at the real estate magazines and the diner in the morning and they'd be like, <laughs> you know, four acres, three bedroom homes, 60,000. You're like, what? I'm loose to North Jersey. You know, put another zero on it. You know, <laughs> right. you know, things falling apart too. Um, so, you know, I, I would be, and I'd be paying an arm and a leg to stay there because to go skiing, it's an affluent sport. You pay a lot to stay there. You pay a lot to go. And um, so, you know, I realized, holy mackerel, as a real estate investor, uh, this is a great opportunity. So I put down my my own money where my mouth was. I bought a little property for $60,000. I put about 30000 into it. And I figured my wife and I would go up there and enjoy skiing. And the other half of the time, she'd rent it out Airbnb and, and we'd make a few bucks. And I started making a lot more than a few bucks. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, I own like $10 million of apartment buildings and I don't really make this type of cash flow on them at all. In fact, I was the amount of cash flow I was making on a hundred thousand dollar investment essentially was like equal to like a million dollar investment in New Jersey. You know, equity wise, of course, you're nowhere close, but just cash flow wise was phenomenal. So, you know, I, I ended up buying another one up there and uh, that's kind of where I was going to stop. I figured I'd have a couple up there and I'd focus on New Jersey and that'd be that. 
And then, of course, the pandemic hit. So uh, like everyone, our lives changed. And Diana, my wife, and I moved up here and uh, just for a few weeks while the pandemic passed in March. And uh, we figured we'd back, be back down to Jersey by April. And uh, so here we are a year and a half later. And we <laughs> bought a million and a half more property up here. We brought our resources from New Jersey, our investor group. We have about 50 good investors that reinvest with us over time. And we're always growing that. And Boy, we put out a few offerings up here and they were funded in days and some in hours. It was incredible. Wow. So that is awesome. And I personally, I bet I would like living in Vermont more than I would like living in uh, (laughs) northern New Jersey. So I don't blame you for staying. But (laughs) I do love it. (laughs) To get to the point of the amount of you mentioned the cash flow you're making. And that is really the first thing that you hear come up when people talk about short term rentals is they say, man, I bought this place. I'm renting it out short term. It's a vacation mm-hmm. rental or what have you, Airbnb. I'm making all this money in cash flow. Yeah, I don't have a, that much equity, but who cares? I'm making so much cash flow. It almost doesn't matter. I'm just going to do a bunch more of these. Mm-hmm. But is it as tried and true as apartment buildings where you can do value add and you have a lot more equity? So you know, let's dive into that. How, how did you feel right. about really scaling up on that? Well, here, here's the test my partner and I always do. We say, okay, it, we always look at these stupid little cryptocurrencies. We say, what if we put $1,000 in that crypto and we made $10 million, okay? And you had $10 million. First of all, what would you do? First thing I would do is get it out of the crypto market. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> You're like, holy man. Then you set some aside for the tax bill. You want to yeah. make sure you pay the tax bill. Right. So pull every single dollar out of the crypto market. The first thing I would do. The second thing I would do is probably invest in apartment buildings, you know, professionally managed high demand locations. It doesn't have to be North Jersey, but that's where our infrastructure is. And, and that's where I, uh, what I what I would do. Um, I do like short-term rentals. I think they're great for cash flow. Uh, they're incredible opportunities to uh, make opportunities work where sometimes you have to be really a lot more picky with apartment buildings that are harder to find. Sometimes with the uh, short-term rentals, you, you have a little more options to buy. So you can kind of move the, the deals forward a little easier, but also, um, you know, you have to look at those local rules and be in a town that is short-term rental friendly. Uh, for example, I would never invest in the Jersey Shore personally with short-term rentals because I see those towns, uh, you know, every every month a new town is making a new law uh, for the Jersey Shore about short-term rentals. And quite frankly, they're all trying to get rid of them. I don't know why. I mean, it's a short-term rental empire, but that's, you know, that's what Jersey Shore is trying to do. So in Ludlow, they get it. They're like, we're a sleepy little town in Southern Vermont. Our tourism is literally like 75% of the economy here is like tourism. So (laughs) if they took away the short-term rentals, they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. And they know that. Now, the state of Vermont is trying to kind of crack down on it. All they're making us do now is register every year, which is free. We just have to type our information into a system so they can know where we are, what what short-term rentals they have. And um, then I think there was uh, some some possible like fee they were talking about, but you know it was like a nominal like eighty dollar fee or something. So I was like, all right, fine, bring it on. So you know that that would that's it. I think Vermont is short term rental friendly. Um, Vermont itself is not really business friendly. My neighbors sure don't like it. <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, it is what it is, and uh, we run a good business up here. We have good assets. We maintain them very nicely. And my neighbors should like it because their property values have increased because I've been buying up the town and, uh, you know, that's good for them. So <laughs> nice. So up until a, a year and a half ago or just pre-COVID, you would have said or you could reasonably say nobody's 
let me back up a little bit. You could easily say all these towns, cities, whatever, not just Vermont, but everywhere. I mean, we have it here in Virginia and everywhere else. They're legislating so hard against short-term rentals, they want to shut it down. Nobody's legislating against long-term rentals. But lo and behold, we had a national eviction moratorium for nearly a year and a half. And you know that hammered some people and others, it was, it was tough. We kind of floated through it and were able to work with a lot of our tenants. But still, that is a new piece of legislation or not even legislation, regulation that came through. But do you think overall the regulatory risk of long-term rentals is lower, even in New Jersey, where I have to imagine in normal times, doing evictions is probably pretty difficult? Right. It's like, at least we know the devil we're dealing with, with long-term deal rentals, right? So we know we have rent control. We know we have five-year green card inspections. I mean, I'm investing in Patterson right now. It's ridiculous. Literally, if someone moves out and I want to rent the apartment again, I need to get three different inspections completed by three different bureaucratic departments of the local government. And you better bet during a pandemic, they're like three months out. You know, So it's just ridiculous uh, how much red tape there is in New Jersey. So what that does is that keeps out competitors, right? So I'll sit here and complain about it all I want. But then again, a lot of people don't do what we do in Jersey because of all the red tape, because of the high taxes, because of rent control. They don't know how to navigate around these things the right way, the legal way, uh, as we do. And, um, you know, it's just incredible. After a while, you really can write a book about investing in blue states and how much red, red tape there is. And uh, maybe that's my next novel. <laughs> that little... should be. That's a good title. You got a good title right there. <laughs> investing in blue states and dealing red tape. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I like that. Um, so yeah, so basically, you know, we know what we're dealing with here. It does keep out a lot of competition, and that's why everyone goes to Texas and the Carolinas, and that's why their property values are booming there. That's true. I mean, you know, as a broader the conversation around regulations, I mean, uh, housing is a supply and demand good, like anything else, and prices are flying upward. The only thing we can do, there's so much demand. The only thing we can do is develop more. But so many of these states, municipalities make it so difficult to build new real estate that it just makes the existing real estate that much more expensive and keeps out competitors. So mm-hmm. make yeah, hay like while the sun shines. Like San Francisco, right? Uh, like, like California, right? Those areas, those markets, I don't know how they do it there, you know? It's a, but, and then what do you really get? You know, homeless people knocking on your door, you know, is what I hear over there. So it's, it's tough, you know, in the inner, in those cities, but in Jersey, you know, we've got a good niche here. We have a good network. Um, we've been working in these cities for years. So we know the, a lot of the people here and, and the people we're dealing with and, um, you know, you just got to know what you're, you know, what you're dealing with, but you know, that's not too hard. The, the short-term rentals, you know, they could just flick that switch and boom, you're out of business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were talking before we started recording. I mean, uh, I, I live in Richmond and Virginia and they did that pre pandemic or the city did that. It went from, there was no regulation, which is not a stable equilibrium. I don't love regulation, but it's, it's going to happen. And then the regulation that came through made it so that, well, you have to live in the property more than 50% of the year. So that just completely shuts down the, say, rental arbitrage model or pretty much Mm -hmm. any other short-term rental model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and again, that's why I invest in Ludlow and then this particular area of Southern Vermont where they really need short-term rentals. And there's no talk of the local politicians of like removing it. So as long as the state doesn't like have a statewide crackdown on it, which would be the first, and I, I'm sure there we'd be able to fight that with suit probably, 
Um, so that, that would be an interesting lawsuit, right? Can a state say no short-term rentals allowed, right? Can a state do that? I don't even know. I'd have to talk to an attorney. You know, that's an, I'll take that to Supreme Court, baby. Here we go. Well, I wouldn't put it past some of those blue state uh, legislators out there, but uh, that's a, a, another a conversation for another day. Yeah, yeah. So we've covered cash flow versus equity. We've covered some of the the tried and trueness of long term versus short term rentals. I just want to talk about getting involved or getting invested, particularly for passive investors. You know, there are apartment syndicators out there. It sounds like that's what you do, where there are a lot of options for investors to get in passively. It's what I do too. But how about short-term rentals? You said you have a network of 50 investors that invest with you. Are they involved in the short-term rentals? How are you handling that? Bringing in passive investors, if at all? I don't know. Tell us about that. Sure. So that, that's exactly why we started doing these short-term rentals and offering them to our investors. Because at this point, we had about $15 million of holdings in New Jersey. And New Jersey holdings, you kind of pay a lot to get in, right? You're buying high-end areas, the rent roll is high, so it's all in context, but you really don't make a lot of cash flow on them. You do very well in New Jersey over a period of time, and you do a cash-out refinance every four years or so and laugh all the way to the bank. But the cash flow <laughs> is like, you know, two to three percent. It, it's tough in high-end high markets. So to counter that, we said to our investor group, all right, here, here's, a, here's a cash flow play. Right. And this is all about cash flow. This is going to get you ideally, we're going for 10, 11% cash flow per year. You know, so if you invest $100,000, you'd expect $10,000 in cash flow per year. And, you know, hopefully the value of the real estate goes up over time and, and, and all those other great things. But we're just talking about the cash flow of the real estate. So, you know, that was very attractive. That's like a stock paying a 10% dividend or something, you know, very attractive. So, um, that is our goal with the short-term rentals. And, you know, there's a lot of tricks to the trade of really, you're running a hotel, you need to have really good management. Uh, the management of it is is really different than long-term rentals. You know, both you have to have good staff and patience and infrastructure, um, good people that really are operating it behind the scenes. That's the, you know, that's the focus. I, I don't do all the management, it's just too much. And uh, so that that's it, you know, but we're running a hotel up here. It's like running a bunch of small hotels, um, so everything has to be perfect, you know, not to mention their reviews go right on Airbnb. So it's like, if you have a disgruntled tenant in an apartment building, you know, they can complain, they can you go to court, whatever, like, you know, that that's kind of all gets settled on Airbnb. Like they'll come and go for a two night stay. And maybe they're upset about something completely <laughs> different. In fact, it's always like my husband didn't come and he left me with all the kids for the weekend, you know, zero stars, zero stars. <laughs> We're like, Oh my God, come on. Right. And then no one wants to rent from you. So you got to be careful there. You know, you really have to make everyone happy at all hours of the night. People will be texting at midnight being like, uh, you know, how do you uh, what's the code again or something? You know, like, so it's just yeah, so it's, it's a lot. But um, that's why we do the whole passive investment to our investors. Of course, they don't have to deal with any of these shenanigans. And the idea is they're going to make a lot stronger cash flow than the Jersey investments. How are those deals structured? Same thing we do with our Jersey acquisitions, a little bit different in the sense that we we do a preferred rate of return. Okay, so we offer a preferred rate of return to our investors generally around uh, five to six percent. That means the first net profits uh, after paying our expenses and our debt services are paid out to the investors. So until they earn a five to six percent annualized return on their investment, and then we'll go ahead and we'll have an equity split on the deal where the investor is going to own equity in the opportunity and get their their portion of the cash flow. 
as well on top of the preferred rate of return. And that's how we get them up to that 10% cash flow we're going for. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So I'd like to also learn about deal sourcing and what you look for in a short-term rental because you mentioned a little bit earlier, if I'm recalling correctly, it's a little harder to assess the market for a short-term rental than it is, say, an apartment complex in a nice part of northern New Jersey where it's right next to a you know a, a train station and you can get right to Manhattan. That makes a lot of sense. There's going to be demand for that. But a short-term rental in a small town in Vermont, how are you really figuring out what the demand is going to be? So uh, first thing we do is usually use something called Air DNA. Uh, AirDNA is a website we have access to that we pay for, and that gives you data on all the local ter- uh, local uh, short-term uh, rental websites in the area, so you can determine what your unit might rent for based on strong data. Uh, the next thing we do is we own a lot of properties in the area, so we just know from our experience and the quality of the unit and everything like that what we would expect units to rent for. Um, it is tough because there's a lot of variables, you know, like a three bed, two bath, you know, might not be the same as this three bed, two bath, right? And and there's so many different variables in real estate. So size, parking, amenities, finishings. And uh, so we, we try to kind of calculate all those in. The problem with these like data websites is they don't really, they don't, you know, you put a three bed, two bath, they'll be like, oh, $1,200. You're like, well, yeah, but it doesn't have parking <laughs> and it's in this part of town, you know, so you got to kind of re- recognize the reality of the situation or vice versa. They'll give you a low number. You're like, no, we're going to have this type of product. You don't get it. People pay more for that. So, you know, it's a science, but it's also an art in essence. And that's how we determine what the rent for. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you spend enough time as a real estate investor or just paying attention to the deals that are happening around you, eventually you'll come across something where somebody screwed up. I'm just an example that's comes to mind for me recently is a house across the street from me was flipped recently. I live in the South side of Richmond. It's fine. It's a decent area, but it's not the best area of town. And this particular property was way overdone for the part of the little bitty part of the neighborhood that it's in. If it was three or four blocks away in the other direction, then it would be worth twice what they had asked for it. And wouldn't you know, it sat on the market and sat on the market and they're going to get probably a hundred grand less than they had thought because shoot, maybe they went to one of those sites that didn't really incorporate that. Hey, it's on the wrong side of this main street that the gentrification hasn't quite gotten there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's absolutely it. You know, and you got to be careful with real estate and that's what we don't really flip houses anymore. You know, Seth Martinez, my business partner and I, we flipped fixed like over 50 houses and that was kind of our bread and butter for a number of years. But I think that's the hardest buck to make in real estate. Uh, you know, buying an old property, you got to fix up. And it's silly because all these shows glamorize it, right? It's the hardest dollar you will ever make in real estate is buying a fixer upper, fixing it up, dealing with contractors, permits, and then trying to sell it. You know, that's the hardest dollar I've ever made. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's so funny how gurus are like, get started by buying a fixer upper. No way, Jose. You know, it's it's crazy. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, when you sell the property, your tax bill is enormous because it's taxed as ordinary income. And I think a lot of people, when they first flip, don't know how big the tax bill is going to be, at least from what I've seen. I remember when I started real estate, um, by year three, I was a realtor with a team and I was starting to flip houses too. 
And I made a bunch of money all of a sudden and I got nailed on taxes and didn't have the money to pay it. I was oh, like, man. Wait, I need it. What, what do you mean? Like, I'm not, I don't have that type of cash laying around. I have a lifestyle. I live in Hoboken, New Jersey, bro. And like, uh, no, it was, it was interesting. And then that kind of set me on the path to say, wait a minute, if I'm going to work this hard and make, you know, $200,000 and 75, it goes to the government. What the heck, man, that makes me angry. You know, where does that money even go, really? You know, and then you start. And so, yeah, I mean, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. and But I made the mistake of not executing what Rich Dad, Poor Dad taught, which is to own assets and pay yourself through the refinance of those assets so that the money you're taking off the table is tax-free money. It's debt that will be paid down by your tenants for years to come. It's safe debt. It's good debt. I'm not taking it out on a million-dollar home. I'm living here with my wife in a pool and a mortgage I can't pay. I'm taking it out on buildings like the one you see behind me, apartment buildings. So the bottom line is I wasn't practicing really what I was preaching or what I what I wanted to be doing at the time. And, and this was you know years ago. And, and I realized, wait a minute, I need to pivot and really practice this uh, owning real estate and refinancing. And now if I pay myself that amount today... I take home that amount. It's in my bank account. I don't have to give it to the government. And I like that a lot more. I like that too. So before we move on to the final little part of the show, I want to really sum it up and ask you, you know, we've we've gone through all these pros and cons of long-term versus short-term rentals. And, you know, let's kind of get a conclusion here as to, I'm not going to say a recommendation as to what people should go for, but if they're thinking about it, what are your thoughts about maybe what they should, uh, you know, go for, or consider before going down the path of long-term versus short-term rentals? What do you think? Well, yeah, there's a lot to consider. Uh, sure. I would say at the end of the day, focus, uh, if your goals are to just have a good investment that, you know, you're, you're just making a solid return on your investments protected. I would go with, with uh, long-term rental properties. Apartment buildings tend to be very tried and true. Um, but diversify, 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 right? So the, the bottom line is also like, it's a lot easier to manage a short-term rental, uh, long-term rental property. If you're going to do short-term rentals, you bet, and, and you think you're going to manage it, like, no, it's not going to be fun. It's going to be a job. So, you know, you could buy like a three family and like deal with three tenants. And like you really, if you have good tenants, it's not going to be that hard. You know, you could probably deal with that for up to about 10 tenants. You could probably like kind of deal with yourself as long as it's not like class D real estate then you know that's a good way to go. But I, I think at the end of the day, a syndicate really is a good option. That's why they exist. I understand I own and operate a real estate syndicate. So of course I'm going to say that. But that's why we exist, right? You don't you know, cut your own hair, you know, you know, I just hurt my MCL. I went to a doctor. Now I go to a physical therapist. You know, there's we go to the professionals. You know, I'm not going to go just bang my knee with a hammer until it feels better. You know, I'm going to go to a professional and get the right diagnosis. So um, and that same thing with investing, you know, same thing with the financial advisor in the stock market, real estate's like having a financial advisor, but with real estate and we're in it with you though. We're in the deal with you. We're in the business with you. We're operating the business day in and day out. And that's a nice, uh, synergy there. Nice win-win scenario. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the short-term rental model is maybe a little bit more, I always use baseball metaphors. I don't like baseball at all, but it's a little bit more swinging for the fences. You're kind of taking a bit of a risk, particularly when it comes to the legislation risk aspect. And we've seen that hit people before, but it can produce enormous cash flows. It's also kind of a lot of work if you do it on your own. Yeah. And don't overpay for the property, right? 
I see a lot of these people like saying like, oh, you can pay whatever you want because you're going to make this cash flow. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I see that stuff on like so these YouTube guys or the guys that sign really high leases and then just expect like leases a little bit more. Oh my God, that's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. We buy the real estate for a good price. So listen, if they change the laws and Ludlow, which would destroy the entire economy here and the veil would never allow that, they'd fight that tooth and nail. Um, basically, uh, what we would do is we would we would sell the properties. We we don't we're not in them for too much, you know. We're in them for the right amount. We'd harvest some equity and we'd move on to Plan B. You know? And uh, so, just don't overpay for the real estate. Rule number one, right? I love that. I love that. We're gonna leave it right there. Right now, we're gonna take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Aaron, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Go ahead. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Boy, uh, I guess I'm going to go ahead and say uh, a five unit I bought in Newark in 2013. And I just, uh, I bought it for 135 grand. I put 30,000 into it and it just appraised for 650. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Woo it's like a casino, you know? No, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> no I mean, what the heck? You know, you buy in the right areas, you maintain, well, I, didn't, I put 30 grand in the thing. Well, you know, here are the passive wealth strategy show. We say wall street is a casino. You, my friend bought at a great time. Newark in that time has probably grown significantly. If I had to take a guess, people trying to get out of New York city mm -hmm. and you weren't in the deal, like a lot of money. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's not nothing, but it's yeah. not a huge buy. It's also an off market deal, like a foreclosure deal. Like I stole it. Like it's one of those deals that, you know, you, you make a podcast about. You know? <laughs> nice. Nice. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Uh, probably a high-end property on Jockey Hollow Road in Morristown. It was a devastating uh, property for us. We, we uh, unfortunately hired the wrong contractors and they gutted the property. And they uh, said, well, you know, we can renovate this whole property for a great price. But first we have to gut it. We're like, well, it's in pretty good shape. And then they gutted it and they said, well, actually the price is two or three times what we quoted you. So then we were left with a gutted property and had to hire new contractors. Oh. Yeah. 
Now, our investors did not lose money. We wrote them a check at the closing table. They made a 12% return on their investment, annualized interest on their investment. So they did pretty well and actually reinvest over time. And uh, we learned that high-end flips are not the place uh, that we do our best work. Nice. Well, interesting. That is your worst. I'm curious, your, your investors still made money. Did you make money on that deal, though? Oh, no. It's a huge write-off. Yeah. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, had to ask. Had to ask. You can My roll over losses. You can roll those losses over. You're <laughs> That's true. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. Still a loss, though. I'd rather make money than lose money. <laughs> yes, exactly. But hey, if you pay yourself you know, a different way, then I can roll over those losses. And like, It's crazy how, how much you can avoid paying tax if you have losses. <laughs> if you do it right, if you do it right, there are legal ways written into the tax code to benefit investors and business owners so that we go out and we create activity. So that's what it's all about. Exactly, my friend. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I would have to say, just be, be fast to fire and slow to hire. You know, I, I'm right now, I'm hiring three or four VAs and oh, boy, it's just constant, you know, and, and you really have to be fast to fire. You know, I hired someone on a Monday, I fired them on a Tuesday. That's it. I've been in this business too long and I, I can, you know, be fast to fire, my friend. Absolutely. Um, I've, you know, VAs, I, I've, I want to say I've struggled with, but you, I totally agree. Fast to fire, especially sometimes, you know, it's, it's tough to coach. I have a great uh, virtual assistant, shout out Rem, who's working for me right now. She's doing a great job, but man, it took some working to find her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know what? I, I do find that a lot of times um, I spend more time correcting their work. It would have been almost faster if I just did it myself. And um, there's also just a huge gap in communication sometimes. You know, my feedback will be what ends up on the presentation. I'm like, you're completely misunderstanding. So, yeah, it's uh, so it's a constant battle to find the right people to work with you. That is the difficult part, particularly when it comes to providing feedback. And maybe they understand, maybe they don't, but it's it's not it's not taken as a, a lesson to carry forward in the mm-hmm. worst situation. So hopefully they're in an ideal situation, they're learning and improving for the future. That's any employee though, right? Anybody yeah, employee. yeah. It's funny. I wrote something like, this is unprofessional. This will attract teenagers. So she thought that's what I wanted on the ad. So she copy and pasted, this is unprofessional. This will attract teenagers on the ad. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. That's where we're at right now. Yep. Wow. Well, Aaron, thank you for joining us today. A very illuminating conversation. If folks want to learn more, they want to reach out, they want to learn about your business or anything else that you're doing out there, where can they find you? Well, our website is peoplescapitalgroup.com. And that's where you can check out our podcast, the Passive Cash Flow Podcast, and uh, get qualified and review different offerings we have coming up. We try to produce an offering every uh, month or so to our group. So uh, check it out, peoplescapitalgroup.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. I've really been wanting to have this conversation with someone who kind of lives in both worlds of the long-term and short-term rentals. So I'm very glad we got to have that conversation today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That's very much appreciated. That helps other people learn about the show. And I'm always honest with you guys. That helps me feel good because I get to see that you guys are engaging with the content you're learning and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.